This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the second portion of Chapter 3 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. By the second portion, I mean Sections 3.3 and 3.4. These two sections deal with fields, and specifically how the vector concepts and the vector operations that were described in Chapters 1 and 2 are useful in working with electric and magnetic fields. The first section in this podcast, Section 3.3, is about the electric field, And that section begins on page 81 of the text. If you listened to the previous podcast, you saw how vector operations such as addition and multiplication by a scalar were useful in doing various types of mechanics problems. What you're going to see in this section and the next section on the magnetic field is how the more advanced vector operations, specifically the differential vector operations, such as divergence, curl, gradient, and Laplacian, are very useful in working with these kind of fields. Since these are all about fields, you certainly should expect to hear a definition of a field right here. But as it says in the second paragraph of this section, defining a field is not as easy as it might seem. You can read the OED definition there. James Clark Maxwell said the electric field is the portion of space in the neighborhood of electrified bodies. Introductory physics tests like Halliday, Resnick, and Walker give you a definition that's very useful as does Griffiths. You can see all those definitions on the bottom of this page. And the common thread running through all of those is that fields and forces are very closely tied together. Specifically, look at the equation that we're going to take as our definition of the electric field on the top of page 82, equation 326. There it says the electric field is defined as the electric force on a small test charge divided by the number of coulombs of electric charge within that test charge. If you're wondering why we're always using small test charges, that's explained at the footnote on the bottom of page 81. But looking at equation 326 makes it clear that the electric field should have units of force over charge, which in the standard SI system means newtons per coulomb. So this equation tells you that the electric field is simply the number of newtons of electric force that a small test charge would feel per coulomb of charge in that test charge. So does that mean the test charge has to be there for the electric field to exist? Absolutely not. The field has an existence independent of the test charge being there to sense the field. But that doesn't stop us from defining the field as the number of newtons of force that a test charge would feel if you were to put a test charge there. Notice also that we define the electric field to have the same direction as the electric force because E on the left side of equation 326 is a vector, F on the right side is a vector, and therefore those are in the same direction provided that Q0, the test charge that we put there to sense the field, is positive. So a general rule to remember is that the electric field points in the direction of the electric force on a positive test charge. If, in fact, we had used a negative test charge, that is, if Q0 were negative, then there'd be a minus in the denominator, which is just as good as having a minus in front of the entire fraction on the right side of equation 326, which says the electric field and the electric force are in opposite directions when you're dealing with a negative charge. The paragraph after the paragraph containing equation 326 on page 82 makes the point that the units of electric field can be expressed as newtons per coulomb or equivalently as volts per meter. Now, we'll get into volts when we talk about potential in a little bit, but for now, just be aware that volts per meter and newtons per coulomb are both perfectly valid units to use when you're describing the electric field. 
There is something instructive about the volts per meter units, and that's described in the next paragraph. Now, if you're not going on to the tensors part of the book and coordinate system transformations, feel free to skip this next part. But what the last paragraph on page 82 talks about is that since the dimensions of length or distance are in the denominator in the electric field, that is volts per meter, that means that when you transform from one coordinate system to another, the quantity of the electric field will have certain characteristics in its transformation. Those characteristics are different from the way another quantity such as velocity or acceleration might transform because those have the units of length in the numerator, meters per second for velocity, meters per second squared for acceleration. So whether the units of length are in the numerator or denominator is going to turn out to be a very important indicator of exactly what type of vector you're dealing with. And as you'll find out if you read on to the tensor sections, the electric field is actually an example of what's called a covector or a one-form because of the nature of its dimensions. The next thing to make sure you're clear on is that once you know the electric field in an area, you can use it to find the electric force on any amount of charge in that area. We define the electric field by using a small test charge, small in total amount of charge and small in spatial extent. But you can use a very similar equation to equation 326 to actually find the electric force on any amount of charge in an area in which you know the electric field. That's on the top of page 83 in equation 327. Notice that equation says the electric force is equal to Q, the amount of charge you have, times E, the electric field in that area. So this equation looks a lot like 326, but notice in the definition equation in 326, we used a small test charge, whereas here we haven't specified the charge. As long as you know the electric field at the location of that charge, you can find the total force on that charge. Now one important thing to understand is that electric charge produces an electric field specifically what we call the electrostatic field, to differentiate it from another type of electric field that's produced by a changing magnetic field. In this case, we're talking about the electric field that is produced by charge, in the same way that mass produces a gravitational field. When we define the electric field as being the electric force per unit charge on a small test charge, we could also define the gravitational field as being the gravitational force per unit mass on a small test mass placed at a certain location. But where is that field coming from? The gravitational field is presumably being produced by other mass. And likewise, the electrostatic field is produced by other charge. We'll say a little bit more about this in a minute after we talk about field lines. But remember, electric charge can both produce an electric field and electric charge can be used as a test charge, that is, as a sensor, in order to detect the presence of an electric field. Now, if you want to visualize an electric field, there are two standard ways to do that. Of course, the electric field being a vector, it's reasonable to conclude that we're going to use some kind of arrows or lines, and that's exactly right. The two approaches to drawing electric fields are shown at the bottom of page 83 in figure 316 and the top of page 84 in figure 317. The approaches are what I call the arrow approach, shown in 316, and the field line approach, shown in 317. In the arrow approach, the strength of the field is given by the length of the arrow. The direction of the field at any point is pretty clear. It's the direction the arrow is pointing. 
So in figure 316, there you see a positive charge in the A part of the figure and a negative charge in the B part of the figure. And the electric field is strongest near the charge. The arrows are longest. And the electric field is pointing away from the positive charge and toward the negative charge. Now, if you prefer to use the field line approach, you can see an example of that on the top of page 84. There in figure 317A, you see the electric field lines. Now, I put arrow heads on the lines, but the lines are continuous. They're not drawn as individual arrows, as in the arrow approach. In this idea, the field lines are spreading out away from the positive charge, or they're converging down onto the negative charge. And these field lines are continuous. I only drew them over a limited region of space, but they always begin on positive charge and terminate somewhere on negative charge. But if the field lines are continuous and you don't have a length there, how do you know how strong the field is? The answer is when you're using the field line approach, you use the density of the lines. Now the thing to remember is this is a flat two-dimensional page you're looking at, but these are supposed to represent three-dimensional fields. So imagine taking those figures and rotating them so that they are three-dimensional. Well, imagine like pins coming out or going into a pin cushion. So there's a three-dimensional set of field lines, and if you imagine a two-dimensional surface perpendicular to those field lines and ask, what is the density of lines through that surface that gives you the strength of the field? Well, clearly, the closer together the lines are, the higher the density will be, and therefore the stronger the field. So the field line drawing in figure 317 gives you the exact same information as the arrow drawing in figure 316, which is that the field points away from positive charge and toward negative charge, and the field is strongest where the lines are closest near the two charges. In the text on page 84, the point is made that these field lines can never cross. You might say, well, what if I've got a positive charge and a negative charge? Wouldn't the field lines possibly be going in different directions and cross each other? No. If you've got multiple charges, at any given point, you may have some contribution to the field from one charge pointing in one direction and some contribution from the other charge pointing in a different direction. But at any point in space, those two sets of field lines add because the fields add, like vectors, to give you a single resultant line or direction. In other words, if the electric field is telling you the direction of the force on a positive test charge, you can't ever have the direction of that force pointing in two directions simultaneously. So therefore, if you have multiple contributors to the field, they all add together as vectors and give you a resultant, which is the total field at that point, and the total field can only point in one direction. So field lines can never cross. There's also a little more discussion on page 84 that electric charge produces fields and that other electric charge can then be affected by that electric field. There are a number of problems in physics and engineering you might run into in which you first have to determine the electric field produced by a series of charges or a charge distribution that gives you the electric field at that location. And then you might have to say, what is the effect of that field on another charge that I place at that location? You may say, but what about the electric field produced by the charge that I'm introducing to sense the electric field? It's a valid concern. But as long as the electric field of the charge that you're putting there to sense the electric field is not so strong as to in some way interfere, that is, cause the other charges to move around, then you can use the field produced by the other charges to determine the effect on the charge you place there. And the analogy I use at the bottom of page 84 
is imagine that you want to know the effect on a mass, uh, let's say a small meteor approaching the Earth. You want to know the effect of the Earth's gravitational field. You could use all the mass of the Earth to determine the gravitational field of the Earth at the point at which the meteor exists. Then you could use the meteor's mass to determine how that gravitational field affects the meteor's trajectory. It's certainly true. With a large enough meteor, it could affect the Earth's gravitational field by causing the mass of the Earth to shift slightly. But if we ever see a meteor that big, you're not going to have to worry about working a problem like this. So generally, what we assume when we do these kind of problems is that we have an electric field produced by a series of charges. You may or may not have to calculate that field based on the location and distribution of those charges. And then you may have to calculate what happens to one or more charged particles that are placed at that location due to the field produced by the other charges. All of this discussion of charges as the sources of electric fields may cause you to wonder how exactly you go about calculating that. The easiest way is to start out with the electric field of a point charge, and that's shown on the top of page 85 in equation 328. There you see the electric field of a point charge is equal to Ke. That's called the Coulomb constant, and it is simply a constant that handles the units and makes the electric field come out in newtons per coulomb if you put in the source charge in coulombs and the distance in meters. That Coulomb constant Ke is multiplied by Q, the amount of source charge producing the electric field, divided by R squared. Notice that's a scalar. It is the distance between the location of the point charge and the location at which you're determining the electric field. So R is a scalar in meters if you're using SI units. And then there's an R hat. Once again, that is simply a unit vector pointing radially away from the point charge. Now you may say, wait a minute, I thought you showed me a negative charge with R hat pointing inward. No, R hat always points radially outward. If you have negative charge at that location, I think of it as the Q in equation 328 being negative, which you can then imagine that negative sign being attached to the R hat, and it says the electric field points in the minus R hat direction, which is toward the charge, because R hat is always radially outward. That's the way I like to do these. If you have another approach, be my guest. There's then an example showing you what the electric field of a proton, which has a very small amount of electric charge, is at a distance of one meter. And you see that comes out to be something times 10 to the minus ninth newtons per coulomb, and it's in the R hat or outward direction because electric field lines point away from positive charge. The next example does the same thing with an electron, which has the same amount of charge as a proton, but it's negative. So notice for Q, there's a negative 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19th coulombs. When you crank out the numbers, you get the same answer, except it's in the minus R hat direction, meaning, of course, the electric field for a negative charge points at the charge, radially inward toward the charge. Of course, you're not likely to run into a lot of problems where you only have one charge. You're more likely to have a number of discrete charges or a continuous distribution of charge. I show the discrete case on the bottom of page 85. There you see Q1, Q2, and Q3, different amounts of charge at different locations, and an electron right at the origin, 0, 0. And you might want to determine what is the force on the electron produced by those other charges in the surrounding area. In order to help you visualize that, I did something on the top of page 86 that you might find helpful. 
Look at figure 319. When we draw the field lines, that does not mean that the field only exists where we're drawing the arrows or lines. The field exists in between them as well. But in order to make it really obvious what's going on at the origin where the electron is, what I did in figure 319 was to tilt the set of arrows representing the field at each charge so you can see that they do in fact point directly at or away from the location of the origin. So look at Q1. I tilted its field a little bit so you can see the decreasing length of the arrow. That is, the field's getting weaker and weaker. But Q1 is a positive charge, so the field is pointing away. So you can imagine that at the origin, where the circle is in the middle of the distribution, at that point, the field from Q1 is going to point down and to the right. Now, if you say, wait, there's no arrow there, that's just because the arrows get smaller and smaller, and at some point you can't see them, but the field is still there. Now look at Q2. It's a negative charge, so the electric field arrows are all pointing toward it. And again, I tilted it a little bit so that you can see the electric field arrows going right through the point zero at the middle. But in fact, this time, they're pointing down and to the left. Likewise for Q3, it's a negative charge, so all the field arrows are pointing toward it. And again, I tilted it a little bit so you can see the Q3 field arrows going through the origin, and in this case, pointing slightly up and to the right. The reason I drew it like that was to help you understand what the r-hat direction and what the direction of the field is in each of those cases. There's a little discussion about those arrows on page 86, and at the bottom, equation 329 just presents each of the three electric fields. That is, the electric field produced by Q1, produced by Q2, produced by Q3, as Ke Q over r squared times r-hat. But remember, you can't simply calculate the magnitude of each of those fields and then add those because they're pointing in different directions. You've got to add these things like vectors. And since R1 hat points in a different direction from R2 hat, which points in a different direction from R3 hat, you need to do your vector addition carefully. One way to do that, of course, is to find the X components of E1 and the Y components of E1. Then find the X and Y components of E2 and find the X and Y components of E3 then add up all the x parts and add up all the y parts to get the total field. That all seems mysterious. In the problems at the end of the chapter, this exact problem is worked out fully, so you'll be able to see the steps in getting the total electric field. Okay, so vector addition and multiplication by a scalar, clearly important when you've got multiple charges, all producing fields, and you're trying to determine the total field at some point. But some of the more advanced operations are also extremely helpful in understanding electrostatic fields. For example, when you consider those field lines diverging away from positive charge or converging upon negative charge, you might think of the divergence operation from Chapter 2. And in fact, one of the fundamental laws of electrostatics is called Gauss's Law for Electric Fields. And it's written there in differential form on page 87 in equation 330. What it says is the divergence of the electric field is equal to rho, which represents the volume density of electric charge, divided by epsilon naught, where that's another constant, this one called the vacuum permittivity, or the permittivity of free space. Somehow in the text, I managed to get both in the vacuum permittivity of free space, which is highly redundant. So what does this equation tell you? It says the divergence of the electric field at any point in space is proportional to the amount of charge at that point in space. If there's no charge at the point you're considering, there's no divergence of the electric field at that point. You might say, what if I'm very near a chunk of electric charge? Doesn't matter. 
If there's no charge at the exact location you're considering, the divergence is zero. Okay. What if I have negative charge? What if rho, the volume electric charge density, is negative? What that means is the divergence is negative, and the field lines converge upon that point at which negative charge exists. This is exactly what you saw earlier when you saw those field lines diverging away from positive charge and converging onto negative charge. So again, that's the reason for the fluid flow analogy where we know there's nothing really flowing in electrostatic field lines, but we compare it to fluid flow in which positive charge acts as the source of electric field lines in the same way that a faucet acts as the source of fluid. Now I understand that the word faucet may not be known to some of you, so you can think of it as a tap from which fluid is being ejected. That tap acts as a source of the fluid and the flow lines of the fluid around it are going to be away from that region. So positive charge acts as a source of field lines in the same way that a tap acts as a source of fluid flow. Negative charge is the point at which the lines converge. That's like a drain or a sink in fluid flow because the fluid flow lines all point toward the drain in the same way that the electric field lines all point toward the negative charge. If you want to see an example of the divergence of an electric field, you can do that for a point charge. And that's done at the bottom of page 87. And I've done this in spherical coordinates because it's the easiest. And I've put in the divergence of E. We know divergence in spherical coordinates. You can look that up in chapter 2. And since in this case, E has only a radial component. The only surviving term is 1 over r squared partial with respect to r of r squared er. But the radial part of E is just keq over r squared. So within the parentheses, the r squared in the numerator cancels the r squared in the denominator. You're left with the partial with respect to r of two constants, ke and q. That partial derivative is zero, so the divergence of the electric field is zero at all points away from r equals zero. Remember what we said, this expression blows up at r equals zero, there's a singularity there, and we need to use integral techniques in order to handle that point. But at every point away from the location of the positive charge, the electric field divergence turns out to be zero because there's no charge density at those locations. Another thing you might anticipate when you look at those field lines near point charges is that the curl would be very small or perhaps zero. And if you take the curl of the electric field of a point charge, you can see on the top of page 88, that also works out to be zero. Once again, there's only an E sub R component. There's no E sub theta or E sub phi. So we plug E sub R into our expression for curl in spherical coordinates, and we end up with an expression that involves the partial derivative with respect to phi of a term that has two constants and an R dependence, and the partial derivative with respect to theta of the same expression. Those derivatives are zero, therefore the curl of the electrostatic field is zero. And you could have anticipated that by looking at the field lines and doing a little paddle wheel test in the vicinity of those electric charges. Vector fields that have zero curl are called irrotational, and they have some important properties. One of those properties is that you can express such fields as the gradient of a scalar field. The reason for that is that the curl of a gradient is always zero. So therefore, if we know that the curl is zero, we can express the vector field, in this case E, as the gradient of a scalar field. And that's done in electrostatics all the time. It's shown in equation 331, where the electric field is written as negative the gradient of V, where V is something called the scalar electric potential. 
It has units of volts, and the minus sign is purely a convention, which actually has some logic behind it that we'll get to in a minute. We consider the Laplacian. What does this tell you about the electric field being the negative gradient of the scalar potential V? What it says is this. As you move along an electric field line, in the direction it's pointing, you are moving into regions of lower electric potential. And if you move up, that is, against the direction of the field, you're moving into a region of higher potential. So if potential is decreasing as you move down the field line, and potential is increasing as you move up the field line, potential must be staying the same as you move perpendicular to the field lines. That's exactly what happens. Those are called equipotential lines, or equipotential surfaces in the three-dimensional case, and those surfaces and lines are always perpendicular to the electric field lines. A lot of students seem to confuse potential and potential energy. And they're related, but they are not the same thing. You can tell that by the units. Potential has units of volts. Potential energy, of course, being energy, must have units of joules. The way I think of electric potential is this. It's the potential energy per unit charge that a chunk of positive charge would have if you put a chunk of charge at that location. But the potential energy only exists if I actually have charge there whereas the potential exists whether or not I have charge there. You can think of the same thing as gravitational potential. Gravitational potential is no more than the gravitational potential energy per unit mass that a chunk of mass would have if I put mass at that location. But even if I have no mass there, I can still say the gravitational potential at this location is a certain amount. And the units are joules per kilogram for mass or joules per coulomb for charge. But that's exactly what volts are. Volts are joules per coulomb. So in other words, if I give you the electric potential at a certain location, you know for sure if you put a certain number of coulombs there, you can determine how much electric potential energy that charge will have. Now you may be wondering, why do physicists and engineers bother defining potential when we've already got potential energy? But if you think about it for a minute, I think you'll agree that if you're just trying to characterize the field, then potential is the more fundamental quantity, because the potential exists as soon as the field is there. As we said, if you move along the field line, you're moving to a region of lower potential. Go the other way, you're moving to a region of higher potential. All you need is the field, and the potential exists. If you happen to then introduce some charge into that field, then there's potential energy. But if you know the potential, then you can determine the potential energy for any amount of charge simply by multiplying the joules per coulomb that is the potential times the number of coulombs of charge that's placed in the field. Another useful thing, once you've got the electric field expressed as the negative gradient of the potential, is to take the divergence of that. That's done at the bottom of page 88 in equation 332. There you see the divergence of E, now that we're expressing E as the negative gradient of V, is equal to del dot, the quantity negative gradient of V, which is, if you read chapter 2, simply the negative of del squared of V, where del squared is the Laplacian. But we know from Gauss's law that the divergence of E is rho over epsilon naught, the charge density divided by a constant. So now we can set del squared V, the Laplacian, of the scalar electric potential equal to minus rho over epsilon naught. This is an extremely useful equation. It's so useful they've given it a name. It's called Poisson's equation. And the discussion in chapter 2 about what the Laplacian actually does turns out to be very helpful here. We said in chapter 2 that the Laplacian is a P 
peak finder or a valley finder if you prefer. That is, it has a big value when you're in the bottom of a valley and it has a big negative value when you're at the top of a peak. So what does this mean? That the Laplacian of the electric potential is proportional to negative the charge density. It says that the electric potential will have a local maximum, that is a peak, or a local minimum, that is a valley, only at those locations at which electric charge is present. And since Poisson's equation has a negative sign in it, it means that there will be a peak in a region of positive charge, because remember, the Laplacian is negative at the peak and positive at the valley. So by putting the minus sign in, positive charge produces a positive local maximum in potential, and negative charge produces a negative, that is, a local minimum in potential. That's one of the reasons that we used a minus sign in equation 331 when we made the electric field equal to negative the gradient of the potential. This way, we get peaks of potential where positive charge exists and valleys where negative charge exists. What if there's no charge there? Then, del squared V equals zero. That's called Laplace's equation. It's equation 334 on page 89, and it simply says, if there's no charge at a certain location, there can be neither a maximum nor a minimum of potential at that point, because Laplacian finds the difference between the function at a point and the average of the function at surrounding points. So if it's zero, then the function is just smooth through this region, no local maxima, no local minima in a region in which charge does not exist. There's some problems exercising your understanding of this at the end of the chapter. Make sure you work through those, or you can move on to section 3.4, the magnetic field. Section 3.4 begins on page 89. In this section, I'll talk about the magnetic field and specifically some vector operations which help you understand the magnetic field, those being divergence and curl, but also how the magnetic field is similar and different from the electric field and how you can use the cross product to determine the trajectory of a charged particle in a magnetic field. We said in the previous section that electrostatic field lines diverge from positive charge and converge onto negative charge. But the field lines of the magnetic field are very different. What I'm going to talk about in this section is the magnetostatic field, which means the magnetic field produced by steady currents. Because just like electric charge produces the electrostatic field, electric currents produce the magnetostatic field. An example of that is shown on the bottom of page 89. In figure 320, you see a current-carrying wire going straight up the page. It's carrying current I, which is a vector because it has a magnitude, some number of amperes or coulombs per second, that is, and a direction, in this case straight up the page. And the magnetic field circulates around that current-carrying wire. So you see the magnetic field B field lines coming out of the page on the left side, going into the page on the right side. The easiest way to find that is to put your thumb along the direction of the current and the fingers of your right hand then wrap around in the direction of the magnetostatic field. Using the density of field lines approach that I talked about in the last section, you can tell that the magnetic field is getting weaker as you get farther away from the wire because the magnetic field lines are closer together near the wire and getting farther apart as you move away from the wire. The equation that describes this magnetic field is shown on page 90 in 3.35. There it says B, the magnetic field vector, is mu zero I over two pi R times phi hat. Mu zero is a constant called the magnetic permeability of free space. It serves the same role 
in magnetic applications that epsilon naught, the electric permittivity of free space, serves in electric field applications. I is the magnitude of the current. This is the source current that is producing the magnetic field. R is the distance from the wire to the point at which you're determining the magnetic field. And phi hat is the cylindrical azimuthal coordinate circulating around the wire in a direction given by the right hand rule. If you're using the SI unit system, the standard unit of the magnetic field is the Tesla. Now you don't have to look at the magnetostatic field lines very long to determine that they're quite different from the electrostatic field lines. We said that the radially outward or inward nature of electrostatic field lines from positive or negative electric charge put them in the high divergence, low curl range, and here it's just the opposite. The way those magnetic field lines are circulating around the current carrying wire, you might expect there to be high curl at the location of the wire. That is indeed the case. You might also expect that there's very little divergence here. We'll show that that's also true. Perhaps the easiest way to see that is to use something called Gauss's law for magnetic fields. This is the magnetostatic parallel to Gauss's law for electric fields, which said that the divergence of E is equal to rho over epsilon naught, the charge density divided by a constant. In this case, Gauss's law for magnetic fields is written on page 90, equation 3.36, which says the divergence of B is zero. In other words, magnetic field lines do not diverge from a point and do not converge to a point. The divergence is always zero. If you want to verify this, it's easiest to do in cylindrical coordinates, which is done on the bottom of page 90. There's del dot B in cylindrical coordinates. Of course, B only has a phi component because it circulates around the current carrying wire. When you plug in B sub phi, given from 335 higher up on the page, you get the expression shown at the bottom of the page, which ends up being a partial derivative with respect to phi of a quantity that depends on some constants, the current, and the distance, but not on phi. Therefore, that partial derivative gives zero. The magnetic field does not diverge or converge. Well, let's see about the curl. On the top of page 91, we take del cross B to find the curl of the magnetic field. Again, there's only a B sub phi. Plug in the values, you find that that is also zero. Now remember, we are not considering the point R equals zero when we do this, because there there's a singularity, and you can't use these differential techniques to find the curl there. But at any location away from the current carrying wire, that is, as long as you are not finding the curl, at the exact location of the wire, the curl of the magnetic field is zero. So even though the magnetic field lines are curving around the wire, the curl is zero except at the location of the wire. As I mentioned, the other useful vector operation for magnetic fields comes about when you try to find the force produced by a magnetic field on a charged particle. That equation is shown on page 91, equation 3.37, F sub B, the force produced by a magnetic field on a charged particle is equal to Q, the amount of charge on the particle, times V cross B, where V is the particle's velocity and B is the magnetic field. Using what we said in Chapter 2 about the magnitude of the cross product, you can also write this as equation 338. The magnitude of the magnetic force is equal to Q times the magnitude of the velocity times the magnitude of the magnetic field times sine theta, where theta is the angle between the particle's velocity and the magnetic field. That equation, especially when you compare it to the electric force equation, which was equation 327, Fe, the electric force, is just Q, the charge, times E, the electric field. There are some important similarities and differences between the way electric forces work and the way magnetic forces work on charged particles. 
Those are listed on the bottom of page 91. The first just says both are proportional to the amount of charge. If I have a region where there's both electric and magnetic fields, and I have a charge experiencing a force from those fields, if I double the number of coulombs of that charge, both forces get twice as strong. They are directly proportional to the amount of charge. Another similarity, they're both proportional to the field strength. If I double E, I get twice the force. If I double B, I get twice the force. But then there are three important differences. For one, the velocity of the particle doesn't appear anywhere in the electric force, but it's critical in the magnetic force. Specifically, if the particle's not moving with respect to the magnetic field, it feels no magnetic force at all. Another thing that equations 337 and 338 tell you is that the angle between the velocity of the particle and the magnetic field is important. If, for example, the particle is traveling along the magnetic field, then theta equals zero, and there is no magnetic force. Likewise, if the particle is traveling in the opposite direction from the magnetic field, then theta is 180 degrees, and the sine of 180 is also zero. But you get maximum force when the particle is traveling perpendicular to the field, because there, the sine of 90 is one. And finally, the last difference mentioned on page 91 is that the magnetic force is perpendicular both to the velocity and to the magnetic field. So the force is never in the direction the particle is moving, nor is it ever in the direction of the field. It's perpendicular to both, as we talked about the results of all cross-product operations must be. You can read about some of the consequences of this on page 92. The one I'll talk about here is the fact that since the magnetic force is always perpendicular to the particle's velocity, it can never speed up the particle, it can never slow down the particle. It must provide only radial acceleration. That is, magnetic force can change the direction in which the particle is moving, but it can never increase or decrease the speed. That means, of course, the magnetic field can never do any work on the particle because it can never add or subtract from the particle's energy. Remember, the force has to be in the direction of the displacement for there to be any work done, and the magnetic forces are always perpendicular to the displacement. You can see an example of how magnetic forces work on charged particles on the bottom of page 92. In figure 321, there's a magnetic field into the page. This is pretty standard notation when you've got a field into the page to use a cross in a little circle, and when it's coming out of the page to put a dot in a little circle. You'll see that in a later figure on page 94, figure 323 has a magnetic field coming out of the page. As I wrote in the text, some people think the reason for that is that you're looking at the feathers of an arrow that's moving away from you when you see the cross, but if the arrow is coming at you, you see the point. For whatever reason, the magnetic field into the page is drawn with the cross in a circle. Therefore, as the particle in figure 321 on the bottom of page 92 moves to the right, when you form V cross B, you push V into the page with the palm of your right hand, and therefore your thumb points straight up the page. The magnetic force will be up the page, in this case, assuming Q is positive. But take a look on the next page, on the top of page 93, at figure 322. Notice there, magnetic field is into the page. Particle of charge Q is moving to the right with velocity V, but I've shown the magnetic force both up and down. It's up in the same direction as V cross B if Q is positive. But of course, if Q is negative, then when I form V cross B and I multiply by a negative Q, it reverses the direction of the magnetic force, which is now down the page. So in a magnetic field, 
a positive and negative charge traveling with the same velocity will feel forces that have the same magnitude but in opposite directions. You may have run into some problems in which particles are said to be circulating around or spiraling along magnetic field lines. And to see how that happens, take a look at the bottom of page 93 and the top of page 94. Here we have a charged particle taken to be as a positive charge, moving initially straight up the page on the left part of figure 323. There's V moving up the page. In this case, B is coming out of the page. The dot in the circle in the middle of the figure tells you that. When you push V into B using the palm of your right hand, you have to orient your hand as that poorly drawn hand I put on there. And when you push V into B, your thumb points to the right. That's the initial direction of the magnetic force. That's a radial, technically a negative radial or a centripetal acceleration to the right. Therefore, the particle curves to the right. In the absence of other forces, by the time it gets to the top portion of this figure, it will now be moving to the right, in which case QV cross B, now I use my right hand, I have to crank my hand around so I can push V out of the page, my thumb is pointing down. And again, Q being positive, the magnetic force is down at this point. So once again, it's a negative radial or centripetal acceleration, which causes the particle to curve around to where it's at the rightmost position. Again, QV cross B, push V into B, you get a force to the left. Makes the particle curve to the bottom position. Now, QV cross B is straight up. So this is what makes a positively charged particle circulate around a magnetic field in a clockwise direction if the magnetic field is pointed at you. Had the magnetic field been pointed in the opposite direction, the particle would have circled in the opposite direction. Or, if I make this a negatively charged particle, it would have circled in the opposite direction. So that's circulating around. But what is this about spiraling along the magnetic field, as you probably have heard about the Earth's magnetic field lines and where charged particles sometimes produce aurora near the north and south poles of the Earth because the particles are spiraling along magnetic field lines? That's actually pretty straightforward. Now that you know about velocity components, imagine that the particle shown in figure 323 has a component of its velocity that is either out of the page or into the page. That won't affect the magnetic forces at all because the component of velocity along the field or anti-parallel to the field, when you do V cross B, that gives zero force. So motion out of the page or into the page in figure 323 feels no magnetic forces. So if at some initial time the particle is moving out of the page, magnetic force will cause it to travel around in what would be a circle, but since it's moving out of the page, that circle is made into a spiral, a helix. Likewise, if the particle initially had a velocity component into the page, the magnetic forces would do exactly what we showed in figure 323, still cause the particle to circle around, but now the particle would also be traveling down into the page. So now there would be a spiral in that direction. So the component of the velocity along the field does not contribute to the magnetic forces at all. But the component of velocity perpendicular to the field is what produces the behavior shown in figure 323. Okay, there are some problems at the end of the chapter which will let you exercise your understanding of these things. I strongly recommend that you work through those and use the online solutions if you need some help with them.